Welcome, everybody, to The Sharp Way with Larry Sharp. If you want to join us this evening, it is 573-427-5463. This is a conversation with me this evening. I know many of you want to always have a guest, but the guest right now is you. If you want to support the program, please support the program at patreon.com slash sharpway. And, of course, follow us on the Sharpway Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Tonight's conversation is about unintended consequences. It's going to sound kind of odd, what I'm going to bring up here tonight. An interesting concept. What do you think about the TLC TV shows, My 600-Pound Life? There are literally multiple shows about people who are seriously overweight, 600 pounds, 700 pounds. There's families, right? Uh, A ton family type things, right? A huge family full of people who are seriously overweight, just very overweight. You might say, Larry, why in the world would you be bringing this up? Well, I want you to think about something. I was watching one of these shows and I said to myself, how in the world can someone stay at over 600 pounds when they can't leave the bed? How do they physically feed themselves? How do they physically gain enough money to purchase the food for them to eat? If you're over 600 pounds, you are seriously consuming a lot of food every single day. How do you do that? How is that even possible? But not just that. How are there people who are enabling them, who are assisting them in making the food for them and delivering the food to them? Why would you even do that? Why would you, if you love someone, why would you keep doing that? What would you do? Why would you do that? It's an important piece here. The people who are over 600 pounds, 700 pounds, whatever the case may be, all of them are on some form of public assistance. Some of the money is coming to them because they are disabled, right? Because they're disabled. They're overweight, severely overweight, they're disabled. So they're, ga- they're getting money from the government now to feed themselves. Yeah. But not just that. They're getting other funds and public assistance, which allows them to live in a home and all those different things, which means, of course, there are other people who want to live in that home. So literally, they're enabling the person so that they can keep getting the money and they can get free rent. But where did that come from? That came from the 90s. It was the ADA, the Americans with Disability Act. And I said, Larry, wait a minute. Are, are you telling me that the ADA is a bad thing? Let's be very clear about something. I do not believe in any way, shape, or form that the people who pushed for the ADA thought they were trying to hurt anybody. I don't believe it at all. I believe in their hearts. They were doing the best of their ability, trying to help people. I believe that completely. But what wound up happening? As we put the ADA out, which was an attempt to help, and I get that, it's what it was. What wound up happening is all of a sudden people said, well, I'm disabled too because I'm too big to work. I'm too big to do anything. They went, boom, ADA. Now we have to assist them disabled. Now they have money from the government. Now they get bigger. Literally, the ADA helped these people get even bigger. Because they didn't have the ADA, they physically couldn't buy the food. They wouldn't have people who were enabling them, and they wouldn't be that big. 
TLC, the, the TV channel that has so many of these shows, should be 100% for the ADA. It's, it's how they're making their money. Good for them. I bring this up because people don't often see that. They often think, well, we want to help people, so let's give them stuff, which I'm not against necessarily helping people. But I'm against putting people in a situation to where they can never get out, a situation to where government ensures they can never leave their disability or never leave their poverty or never leave their bad situation. It's very often an unintended consequence, which no one even thinks of. They just go, oh, my God, these poor people, they're overweight. We should give them more stuff. Not realizing that that's why they're overweight. That's the reason. We, if you go back 40 years, 30 years, you physically couldn't have that many people who are over 600 pounds to where you could have multiple shows on a TV channel. They wouldn't exist. They simply wouldn't exist. Without the ADA, that doesn't happen. This goes back to the same idea I talk about often. When government creates a plan to try to make people happy, what they often do is trap people into a cycle of unhappiness. If you ever watched any of those shows, and I have, and when I've watched them, what I saw, what I still see if I ever watched them, is a lot of unhappy people. People who are unhappy with where they are in life, unhappy with what's happened in their life, and they feel trapped. And we've trapped them. We've trapped them. That didn't happen years ago. It happened because of the ADA. Hope that was interesting for you. I'm going to grab a couple calls today. Again, this is your show. Let me grab uh, Peter. He wants to talk about cannabis. Peter, how are you, sir? Peter, are you there? Peter, are you there? Yes, I'm here. How are you, sir? Talk to me. Oh, I'm doing great, Larry. How are you this evening? Awesome, awesome. Talking about unintended consequences. Why don't you give me one? Okay, well, here, here we go, and I, I've been listening to your subject, and uh, a lot of it has to do with what you know I believe is a complete society that's cannabinoidally depressed, um, mm-hmm. and, and what happens, too, is especially with these people, like, it, like you say, it's enabling. There's yes. no medical reason why anybody should ever reach 600 pounds, period. Yes. I mean, there are ways to stop it and ways to prevent this. And like you're saying, it just opens up doors to do it. And, and honestly, cannabis is a solution to that. If anybody doesn't know me, I'm a cannabis activist yep. who's uh, at this point in time uh, orchestrating and organizing the largest civil and human rights walk from California to D.C. that will leave in June 18th of 2020 and arrive on the steps of Washington before the end of the year, before the election. Uh, to make our point, to end cannabis prohibition, to free all prisoners that are in jail, victimless crimes, I like as that. well as uh, as well as to give us back the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in which we were promised in our founding documents. But Peter, I, I got to tell you though, hold on, I got to tell you something here. Yeah, you're telling people that cannabis is going to help us not eat. Wait a minute, I thought it's the opposite. Doesn't cannabis no, give us the you're munchies? Right. Well, here's the misconception. Go ahead. Sativa strain, uh, indica strains for sure. Any strain yes. <laughs> of indica cannabis will make you hungry. It's indica because it's in the couch. You get, you, you know, you get very relaxed. Oh, I like you that. Eat, indica eat. is in the couch. I'm so going to steal that. Right. That's good. That's how we make people remember. And then, and then there's sativas. And there are, sativas are mind stimulants. They, you know, we think of it as that's your coffee in the morning. 
your sativa is your coffee in the morning. It wakes you up. It gets you going. It gets you, it gets you motivated. You do things. You become creative. In the evening when you want to relax, say you would don't drink a glass of wine. You smoke a nice bowl of indica and you relax. So cannabis like comes that. in many strains and many forms, and that's, again, the misconception. It's real easy education. Um, so hold on, Peter. Peter, let, let, me, let me tell me where people can go to find out about your march. Everybody, you can go to www.thsintl.org. That is the Human Solution International in which I chapter solidarity over separation, and uh, which we believe nobody should be in jail for a plant here in New York, which is becoming an actual traveling chapter. We're traveling the, re- the country the rest of the year. Now, like also, we do have the website going up for the walk. It's under construction, but please look for it. It is www.walk, the number four, change.us. That'll be our website. We're looking for sponsors. We're looking for donators. Please, folks, this is for every human's life on this planet. I like that. Peter, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Larry. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. All righty. Have a good night. You as well, sir. This goes right into something else, right? This is another issue of unintended consequences, right? You you decide that we're going to ban cannabis. We're going we're gonna to ban cannabis. And what happens? Well, you got a bunch of people choosing other drugs other than cannabis. And you got people choosing cannabis going to jail. You've got you know fatherless people, fatherless families, people going to jail for unnecessary reasons. Uh, it was the hope to ban cannabis was, of course, to to stop the the horrible you know uh, crime and things that would happen for all these crazy people on cannabis. And the reverse was true; it made things far worse, far worse. So I appreciate that, Peter. Thank you so much. Let me grab, if I could, Jim. Jim wants to talk about TLC shows. A man after my own heart. Jim, how are you, sir? Jim, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. How are you? You don't sound like Jim. No, I'm back in. They must have given you the wrong line. No worries. I'm happy to chat with you, Beck, and talk to me about FEMA. Go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to know what Larry's heard about FEMA taking over the flood insurance. Last time they were going to do it when all the flood maps were messed up, our flood insurance was going from 800 a year to 3,000 a year. And now I'm hearing that that's about to start up, and and that's what's going to happen. So I'm just wondering if Larry heard anything, what we can do. It's okay. I'm Larry. You're talking to Larry right now. You're talking to Larry right now. Oh, hey, Larry. Hey, I'm here. Yes, actually, I have not heard of this. Can you give me some details, if you don't mind? Uh, Yeah. A while back, probably about three years ago, FEMA was going to take over all flood insurance. Uh, Also, for some reason, like our all-state insurance couldn't carry flood insurance anymore. It had to go through FEMA. Uh, my insurance was going to go from 300 a year to 8,000 a year. It was a letter that we received from FEMA at the time. And then somebody found out or something happened that FEMA hadn't done the flood maps properly and they were overcharging certain people and undercharging others. Wait a minute. You're so saying that to, when, hold huh? on, you're saying that when a federal government took over, things got worse? What? <laughs> That's never happened before ever. I can't believe that could ever happen. Yes, I'm, I'm, look, yeah. I, I don't actually know the details of this. I don't. But I'm not surprised at all by this. Uh, the issue, of course, is very common. When things go wrong, we constantly rush towards government to fix it. And we tend to go even higher. We tend to go, you know, federal government, then that'll help, right? You'll often hear things like, we need federal oversight. We need federal regulation. You'll hear that often. And the concept is yes. if we have federal oversight, 
then it will be better. That's the concept. And I get where that comes from. That comes from the idea of we don't want local bullies hurting people, right? I understand that concept totally. But we've gone far too far in this country with every single thing has to be by the federal government. As we keep doing this, again, the government does one thing, does several things, but one thing very good, and that is it checks a box. So what it will do is say, did you do this thing? Check a box. You didn't check a box. You don't get whatever they want you to get. And they won't care about whether it actually hurts you or doesn't hurt you. So they'll send the note out. And the note will say, do A, B, and C so you can get your insurance. And if you do A and B but not C, you're screwed. If they sent out a note that said A, B, and C, but you were supposed to do A, B, C, and D, you're still screwed. It doesn't matter. That's how it works constantly because it's checking a box. My concern, though, is why in the world would you not be able to get private flood insurance? Uh, for some reason, the government put a stop to it and said you can only get flood insurance through FEMA. Now, that's a problem. Uh, small insurance companies no longer can sell flood insurance anymore. And now I'm sure it's all better yet again. Because you know what always works? Monopoly. Monopoly always works. Monopoly is amazing. I'm so glad that now we have Monopoly on flood insurance. I'm sure it'll only get good because that's what Monopoly is always the best. Now, obviously, a lot of people are going to lose their homes and businesses because we can't afford to (laughs) triple our insurance. It's, it's, yeah, I I don't know. It's it's, a lot of people are going to lose their homes and businesses. What part of New York do you live in? Uh, Western New York, up in Webster. I actually met you in Rochester when you came. Oh, awesome. I'm so glad. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate that. See, (laughs) I, I haven't abandoned you yet. One day, maybe, but not yet. See, I've been good. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. I'm still here. We're, We're together trying to fix this state. It's so broken, I know, but we have to keep fixing it. I know we do. So um, I wish yeah, I had a better so. answer for you, but I'm glad you brought this up. For those of you who have been paying attention to you know, what myself and my team and what we've been doing for the past couple of years, very often people either call into the show when I was doing the GovShack or find me someplace when I'm doing an event and bring up an issue that I don't know anything about, that I, I'm unsure of. And then myself and my team, we do homework and figure out what the right answer is. So I want to say thank you, Beckin, because I didn't know what this was. My team and I will jump on this, and we'll come up with an answer that I think will make sense. This has happened multiple times. So those of you who didn't know this, you know, I support the father's rights movement, right? I support fixing family law and family courts in New York State. Uh, I knew nothing about this before the campaign, right? People found me, talked to me, brought this up to me, and that's why I started talking about it because people like you, Beckin, was, was savvy enough to say, hey, this guy's paying attention. Let's put this on his radar. It also happened with the vaccines, which, again, I was completely unaware of that. And also, believe it or Mm -hmm. not, also happened with the DMV regulations with people losing licenses for their entire life. All these things I had no idea was even happening in New York State. In fact, some of them I didn't believe up front. They seemed so outrageous, right? If this was three Mm -hmm. years ago and you had told me this back and I might have said, nah, there's no way the federal government would stop people from having private insurance. Now, I believe you 100%. And I and you could yeah, be making absolutely. this up. You literally could be making this up, and I believe you 100% because that's exactly what government does constantly. So I actually believe you, even if you're lying to me. Please don't lie to me. I promise I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, there was just a big meeting of Congress. Uh, I think it was the last week about it, and I watched that live, and it doesn't look good. FEMA's going to come in and take us off for everything they can. Yeah. Well, look, always remember something. Generally speaking, when government has a new program that has us pay, it's almost always a money grab. 
right? It's a general rule. It's a money grab. Uh, never assume it's for our safety. I, they say safety. I but would they believe that. I would believe that if they hadn't gone so high. They, they've gone so high that people just aren't going to be able to pay it. There's going to be people foreclosing on their homes. They're going to be trying to sell as best as they can. It's going to be impossible to sell a house where the flood insurance is so expensive. So what if do you think is going to happen grab, then? They wouldn't have gone so high. What do you th- what I, do you don't, think I don't know. All right, I so, don't know why they're so doing it. So let me it. ask I, you, if you can't pay for your flood insurance, what are you going to do? I would end up losing my home because you can't have a mortgage without flood insurance. And if you can't pay the mortgage, you lose your home. So does that mean you're going to sell? I'm going to try my best. So you're telling me that what's going to happen. I'm going to try my best if I can. Is that this is literally going to put you out of your home. Yes. And your local mayor, your local executive, no answer. I haven't contacted anyone about it as of yet. You were the first person I called and spoke to about it. Mark, actually, my guy told me to give you a call and see if you'd heard anything about it. I love that. Thank you. I'm glad I'm the first guy you call. Thank you so much. I feel very special. Um, I would like you, though, (laughs) if you don't mind, to reach out to your local either executive, county executive, or your mayor if if you live in a city, whatever the case may be, because one thing they care about is their tax revenue. And if people start leaving Mm – they're going to be unhappy because, you know, in New York State, property tax is a huge way they make money. And if you start yeah, yeah. If people start defaulting and leaving, that's going to affect their bottom line. And there's only a certain amount We're by of, the lake in Webster. Our, uh, oh, ins- yes. our uh, insurance is already ridiculous. There we go. So exactly. So you know what I'm talking about. We really need mm-hmm. um, I would reach out, see what's going on, because the odds are if FEMA's doing that, what they'll probably do is create some kind of an exception, which they always do. They'll make some form of exception and say, well, we'll do local this or local that, and there'll be some form of exception because they don't want the entire Western New York to pack up and move out. I'll definitely see what I can find out. Yes. Just just reach out. You'll be fine. Sounds good. I appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you, Beck, and have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. So, yeah, this this happens often, right? There's a There's an issue that we should all be thinking about. When there is a natural disaster, we often believe immediately that the federal government has to step in. And it's not necessarily a bad idea for people who are outside of the the natural disaster area to step in. It's not necessarily a bad idea. But once you start prepping to a point where now only the federal government can be the only one stepping in, now you actually make things worse, right? Monopoly is never a good thing ever. We don't want monopoly. So if you have it where only the government can step in, that means when local people want to help, they can't. When local people want to help, they feel like, well, wait a minute, I can't because the government would do it. There's an, there's an old um, uh, story that people say all the time. They say, Larry, you know, why do we need to have all these emergency vehicles and emergency this and emergency that? If you saw someone on the floor, you know, having a heart attack or something, wouldn't you go help them? And I've heard this often. And I say two things. One, maybe not. And two, who says I know how to help them? Two important issues. One, would I actually do it? I don't know. And you might say, well, Larry, are you a bad guy? No, because I've been trained my entire life that when someone's in trouble, you call 911. It's simply habit. And when people are in stressful modes, they fall back to habits. It's what people do. We've been trained in our heads for literally decades. What you do is when someone's in trouble, you call 911. That's what you do. So when that happens, does that mean someone immediately decides to help? Maybe not. 
Now, don't be wrong. Some people do, and I'm glad that they do. And please, if you're one of those people, please go help. But we can't expect everyone to break their bad habits. And we have lots of habits. You call 911. It's what we do. Anyway, let me grab the call if I could. I'm going to try to grab Jim again. I think Jim called back. So I'm going to try to grab Jim again. Jim, you want to talk about TLC? Are you there? Yeah, hello. This is Jim. Can you hear me? Jim, I got you, brother. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, hey, Larry. I've been a long-time listener, first-time caller. I am just on my uh, evening drive home from work today, and I heard you uh, discuss the 600-pound life show earlier. Yep. And how many spouses you've had and, and how it's such a big problem in America. Yes. And uh, I just thought I'd call with my opinion on that. Go ahead, please. So, yeah, uh, I live in rural New York, and I've, I've been around a lot of people. A lot of people in my family have uh, gained a lot of weight yep. uh, lately. Uh, as a child, I was actually sent off uh, to live with my aunt's house uh, because my parents had gained so much weight they could no longer take care of me. Oh, I'm so and sorry they, to hear that. Running. That's horrible. Yeah, but uh, uh, anyway, I moved in with my aunt. Uh, the other side of town, and uh, it was it was all because of my parents. Uh, but but anyway, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But anyway, uh, um, I'm losing you, Jim. Jim, are you still there? Okay, I think uh, Jim is uh perhaps crashing into a train. I hope he's someone is near there to call 911, as we just talked about. I hope some people are also there to rush and help him. What what a coincidence that was. There we go. Now, nicely done, Jim. Okay, uh, let me grab, if I could, I'll grab Nick. Hopefully Nick is not being struck by a train, and hopefully he's not in the car either. Uh, Nick, uh, he wants to talk about gambling. I like that. Nick, how are you, my friend? Nick, are you there? Yep. What's going on, Nick? Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Talk to me. Oh, sir, I am. Uh, so I'm just curious your thoughts. You know, after we had the gamble case here recently in the Supreme Court, reaffirming double jeopardy uh, with the federal and state system, what are we going to do? Please, like, please I, explain I, I just, that to, to everyone listening. Please explain it. Sure. So the Supreme Court just finished another case uh, where they reaffirmed double jeopardy. What they essentially said is that because states and federal government are two sovereign entities, that you can try the same person for the same crime as long as it's a different as long as it's a different jurisdiction right there, Mm -hmm. which is a clear violation of double jeopardy. And unfortunately, with this, Larry, is that you think about it with just the progress of three strike laws for felons Mm -hmm. and where the average person is probably committing three felonies a day, as far as we're aware of, how are we all not going to end up in jail in the next 20 years? Well, no, you've brought up a very valid point. And I think if you look at this, what's been happening and it's, it's, it's a common issue, right? And that is we're coming up to a situation to where everyone is guilty. The question is, when do they target you? Right? The second they target you, that's when you go to prison. The issue to remember here is, You are guilty unless you're proven innocent. I wish that wasn't true. I know our Constitution says the opposite. I know that our society is supposed to believe that. But I do a lot of work. Some of you may know I do work with criminal um, defense attorneys. And what you realize is when Mm -hmm. you go, and if you've ever been in that situation, you know what I'm talking about. When you go to a court and a criminal court, you're assumed guilty. 
the prosecutor assumes you're guilty. The judge assumes you're guilty. The press assumes you're guilty. The public assumes you're guilty. And the jury assumes you're guilty. They all assume you're guilty. That's just how it works. They all believe that. They believe that why would the cops, why would the judges, why would the prosecutors put some guy or some gal in front of us if they weren't guilty? They believe that already. Now, is it a 100% rule? Of course not. But it's a good general rule. Most of the time, you're already guilty. So when that's the case, when you think of it that way, that makes total sense. Why wouldn't you want multiple ways of putting someone in prison just in case some dumb jury lets an innocent guy go? We got to make sure we have more ways of putting that person <laughs> away. So it actually makes total sense if you understand the way, of, the way of us thinking, right? The concept is the state or the government is correct by default. Listen to what it is. When, when, when you go to uh, – when you get a criminal trial, they say it's the people versus someone, Right. The people versus, you know, John Doe for a murder case, the people versus Jane Smith for uh, a robbery case, whatever the case may be. But in reality, it isn't. That's a lie. It's the government against them. The people, the people being tried. The one who, who represents the people is actually defense attorney. That person actually represents the people, not the prosecutor. It's an entirely opposite way. So I'm not surprised at all by this ruling. This this is it seems to fit exactly what I think and what I think most of them think. What do you think is the answer here? Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, barring uh, sharp 2022, uh, even then that wouldn't be enough. What do, how are we going to get our legislature behind this? Uh, and how are we going to change that perception in society? Because barring a Supreme Court case, I feel like we're too far along that I don't know if we can get back. This is a, it's a big issue, right? I think you have to have, you have to have someone else push this issue again and have it go back to the courts again and go back to the Supreme Court again. And sadly, that's at least a decade away. I, I mm. wish that well. was next week, but it's probably at least a decade away before we go back. Because, again, most people still think, well, look, think about this. We've had a war on drugs for about 40 yeah. years, yeah. give or take, right? 40, 50 years, give or take, yeah. right? With that, we've put literally millions of people in prison for stuff that should not be a crime. And where's the backlash? Where's the yelling and screaming? Why aren't we stopping it? Why is marijuana still a schedule one drug? Right? Because no it's backlash. racism in America, Larry. It's not the government. It's, it's not the war on drugs. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's horrible yeah. that that's true. So I don't see the country. I mean, look, you've heard me many times talk about cops and the war on drugs. I don't think cops are good or bad. I think cops are part of a bad yeah. system. That's what I think. Right? I was in a debate about a year and a half, two years ago when I was running for governor, and the question came up saying, you know, should people who kill cops get extra time in prison? And, of course, both people said, yes, of course, yes, yes, yes. And I said, no. No. Cops are citizens like anyone else. There's no extra time or less time, right? Well, they kill the cop. Yeah, but when they don't kill a cop, if you're that person's loved one, that hurts just as much, right? If your son, daughter, mother, father, loved one is killed, you hurt just as much as someone who lost a cop. It's just a human being. It's a citizen. There's no difference. But you find a lot of people in our country, lots, think that because it's government, it's special. And I'm the one who says no. It's not special, but people believe it, which means when government says we can try you two, three, four, five, six times, 
yep, why not? I mean, think about it. When when OJ got off, they wanted to try him again, right? Yeah, yeah, they, they did. They yeah. want to try him again. They want to keep trying until we get him. Let's keep trying until we get him. Well, then why bother trying him? Once you're accused, get executed. Saves a whole lot of money, doesn't it? You're accused. Send you to the gallows. Execute you right then and there. Life is good. We move on. A L- lot less pain. So I- I'm no, teasing thank you, Thank you for our let you do, sir. Yes, um, yeah. I'm teasing you, obviously, but I, I hope you get um, – I'm not surprised by this. I think we have to keep talking about this. Double jeopardy is a real issue, right? It's a real issue. Well, the other thing is when you find someone gets tried in two, three, four – gets I shouldn't say tried – when someone gets indicted in two, three, four states. You find that happens too. It's a problem. Well, where do you try them for each crime separately? And the biggest problem is if let's say I get indicted in three or four states, how can I defend myself in three or four states unless I'm a multimillionaire? You just mean yeah. it just yeah, exactly. means yeah. the wealthy can defend themselves and the poor just take pleas because there's no way they can defend themselves in four states. It's impossible. Yeah, and, and it makes perfect sense for them to take the pleas too, because they're not gonna you know, why risk why risk the uh the high level of uh you know conviction that they're gonna get? Absolutely. Yeah. You know? Yes. Sadly, and you'll hear me say it often, in America, if you can spend six figures or more on your defense, you can get a fair trial and you can get fair sentencing. If you can spend seven figures or more on your defense, you can actually get off even if you're guilty. If you can't spend either of those, you're guilty. Just plea. You're guilty. It's how a system works. It's sad. Yeah. So anyway, thank you for the phone call, my friend. I appreciate it. Quick question. Who would you recommend that we go out to? You know, who do they send cases to to keep trying this in the courts? Like what organizations are pushing this? You know, in New York State, I would actually first thing place I'd go is the Empire Center. There you go. First place I'd go. If you're in New York State, go to the Empire Center. Go to them first and see what they have to say. If they won't take it up in any way, shape, or form, they will send you to the right place. Go there first. Thank you, Larry. All righty. Have a good one. All right, guys, thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. I'm going to grab another call if I can. I'm glad the phones are ringing, guys. Again, if you like what you're, you're hearing, support us. Head over to uh, patreon.com slash sharpway. Donate what you can donate to keep this going on. Keep the cool guests coming on. Keep you guys talking, having access uh, to me and having access to others who think the same way you do. Also support us on the Sharpway Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm going to grab a call. I'm going to grab John from Rochester. What's going on, my friend? How are you, John? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Larry? Good. I'm doing great. Talk to me. Yeah, so uh, my neighbor, uh, we've been having a little dispute lately, and uh, I just wanted to bring that to the uh, topic discussion today. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, my neighbor, he uh, he's one of those crazy, like, uh, gardener people, uh, and he mows a lot of three times did you say he's uh, a he's gardener? Is that what you said? He's a gardener, so okay. he, he wants to keep his uh, looking absolutely uh, pristine, uh, you know, uh, pristine looking uh, like golf course. Uh, you get what I'm saying? John, you're breaking up. I'm sorry, I can't really hear you. Can you call back in a better line? Okay. There we go. I think another guy's get got hit by a train. This is the train night. I don't know what's going on here. People get hit by trains all day long. This is a crazy night for me. So, yes, uh, again, if you want to be part of the program, please feel free to give us a buzz at 573 427 
888-528-5463. Give us a call. I'm happy to have a conversation. I want to talk about something completely different if I could. I know I covered the TLC piece, and I covered that whole issue. I want to go someplace completely different. I want you to think about FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You might say, well, why do we care about him, Larry? Are you going to tell me about his, his great solutions and government solutions? No, I'm not. I'm going to bring up something that many of you may not think about, and it's another unintended consequence. If you know your World War II history, and some of you I'm sure do, um, you may remember that during World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted unconditional surrender from both Germany and Japan. The other allies were not about that, but he was about that unconditional surrender. And ostensibly, that may make sense. Right? Look, we're talking about Nazis, right? Why in the world would you want to negotiate with Nazis? I, I get that. that I, I, I feel that. I see it. It seems to make sense. But there's a big problem. Once you have unconditional surrender, that means people are going to fight harder. It means the enemy is going to fight harder and longer and not want to end and not want to talk to you. You might say, so what? Let them all die. If it was just them, that's fine. But I want you to imagine if you could. It's 1943, 1944. And again, those of you who know history and know World War II, the Germans and Japanese both knew the war was already over. They knew that. But they did not want unconditional surrender. They thought, that's it. You're going to murder all our people. You're going to destroy our country. We'd rather just fight to the death. Just blow us up then. Forget about it. We're not going to do this. We're going to keep fighting. But imagine if instead, the Allies had instead said something like this. Germany, give us Hitler and you know your top 20 guys and we'll talk peace. Just do that and we'll start talking peace. And you guys can surrender. We'll have a, we'll have a talk on how you can surrender and end this war. The Germans tried to kill Hitler about over 40 times, but they couldn't do it for many reasons. One of them being they had no support from us. We weren't supporting it. We didn't care. We wouldn't unconditional surrender. But imagine if we had said that. The Germans would have killed Hitler, given us a bunch of top Nazis, and we could have talked peace. You might say, well, why would we do that, Larry? Because the war might have ended in 1944. And I want you to think about the one full year of that war and all the people who died in that last year of the war. Russians, Germans, Americans, Italians, Japanese, the Jews in the camps, all of those people who were murdered and died and bombed out homes and destroyed families that last year of the war. All because FDR wanted to be righteous. He wanted to be righteous. Unconditional surrender. I will not talk to Nazis. I will not do it. And going that route... Millions of people died. And when I say millions, I'm not exaggerating. Millions. In fact, if we had talked to the Japanese, the Japanese weren't going to surrender because they believed we would execute their emperor. And we didn't. They still have an emperor today. If we had simply talked to them, they probably would have surrendered a whole lot earlier. They were talking to the Russians about surrendering months before they, we, we dropped bombs on them. And we wouldn't have had to even drop bombs, nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki goes away if we don't have unconditional surrender. This goes back to something I bring up often. You have to talk to everybody, even the people you don't like, even the people you disagree with, even the people you hate. 
You can talk to them. It doesn't mean you stop the fight. It doesn't mean you give in to them. You can talk while you're still fighting. We could have kept fighting while talking to them. You can do that. But when we don't talk, we lose. Cuba, we don't talk to Cuba, right? Now we are finally. For years, we didn't talk to North Korea. How'd that work out? Failure, failure, failure. We can talk to people. You saw me last last week. I'm talking to a Green Party guy. I'm not a Green Party guy. I'm talking to Howie Hawkins. We can talk to people. It doesn't mean we have to surrender. It doesn't mean we have to stop fighting, but we can talk. We can turn these people. Now, I bring up Nazis because you remember Charlottesville a couple years back. The, the governor, McAuliffe at the time, he says, here's my answer to all you Nazis. Nazis, go home. Wow, was that stupid. Wow, was that stupid. His answer is Nazis go home. These aren't German Nazis or Russian communists. These are Americans. When they go home, they're your neighbor. Their kids go to school with your kids. They're Americans. What does go home mean? Go home so we can have beer together at the bar? What's wrong with it? It's not an answer. You have to talk to people. The unintended consequence of standing on your high horse and being righteous means more people get punished. That's how that actually comes, works out. More people get punished. I'm not about standing on my high horse and sounding righteous. I want to be righteous. Of course, we all do. But I'm about fixing things and getting – I can't turn people if I can't talk to them. I can't do it. Some of you may know that guy. His name is Daryl Davis. And he's a guy – he's a brother who go out and talk to people who are Klan members, the KKK members. And he's converted over two dozen of them. How? By talking to them, not by yelling at them and telling them to go home, but by talking to them, befriending them. It's taken him years to do this, years, decades to do this. Can you imagine if we had a thousand Daryl Davises in this country? We'd have a different, better country in 10 years, different, better country in 20 years. Talking matters, not talking and sounding righteous in the long run means a lot of people die. And World War II perfect example of that. All those people who died in that last year of the war didn't have to die, but our righteousness is why they all died. All right, let me grab another call if I could. Let me see. Let me see if I can get, uh, um, is there a prank caller on? Is, is he on? Bring him on. Hey, prank caller, come on back. Are you there? How are you, sir? Okay, he's the prank caller is done. I guess he's not here. Are you here? No. Hello. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. I I, I don't know what. Can you hear me now? Uh, it's bad. I'm sorry. Sorry. Let me let me grab someone else here. In fact, I'm gonna grab someone from outside of New York if I could. I'm gonna grab someone from Texas. I'm gonna grab Doug if I can from Texas. How are you, Doug? Doug, can you hear me? Yes, sir. How are you? How are you? I'm fantastic. Ask anyone. Awesome. I will ask someone and see. <laughs> All right. I just want to know, uh, with the primary season ramping up, especially for the Democrats, Yep. what are your intentions? I don't know what that means. What are my intentions? Are you going to seek the Libertarian uh, Party presidential uh, nomination? I appreciate the question, and the answer is no. Um, I, I know people are asking me and many people have asked me and I appreciate that. But here's something, um, there are two reasons why I won't. 
The first one is I just took a year and a half off to run for governor. I literally took a year and a half off of my life. I did not get a salary for a year and a half as I crossed the state. I wanted to show people that you can run as a third party. You can run as libertarian and you can make impact and keep going. I'm trying to build a culture of not just the Larry Sharp show. Well, I love Larry Sharp show, by the way, the sharp way. But it shouldn't just be the Larry Sharp show. It's got to be we have to have other people to step up also. The culture in our in our movement, in the liberty movement, has been some guy or gal says, I'm going to run and do cool things. They go off to run. They they get their butt beat, as we all do. Then they walk away and never see him again. I didn't want to be that guy. I want to be the guy who runs, shows you how to run, does it the right way, builds out infrastructure, lets other people have the infrastructure, and then keeps going to support others. So I'm trying to bring more people into the movement, grow the movement, and I think I can do more doing this than I can by running right now. Because if I run right now, I'm going to have no money, no time, and probably no family. Probably when I come back, my wife will have left me. So I would rather not do that if I don't have to. So maybe 2024, maybe. Um, I'm not ruling it out, but I'm definitely not uh, doing 2020. It's just something I just can't do. And the second piece is I only want to run when I think I can make real impact, right? The thing is, people often say when they run, they say something like this. Larry, I'm going to run because I want to give people a choice. Nobody cares. Nobody wants another choice. They don't care. It's a waste of time. Don't do that. You want to run because you want to have some sort of impact. My goal to run was several things. And one of the advantages of running in New York State was whether I won or lost, I knew I would break 50,000 votes. And for those of you who don't know, in New York State, 50,000 votes in a gubernatorial election is what it takes to get ballot access in New York State. So I knew I'd get that no matter what I did. I was hoping to win, obviously. I was running to win, obviously. But no matter what happened, I would make impact. Not just that, I purposefully built a team that was throughout the entire country, right? So now other people can pick up my team to run their own campaigns. And I built a policy library, which means people now can go to LarrySharp.com and check policies and build their policies off the policies that I've built and then shift and adjust them depending upon their world. So that was the entire point. I could make impact because when I run, I get people to give me money, time, and also you know, to give me a lot of their emotion. I don't want to be the guy who says, yeah, I'm running just for my ego, and then I lose, and then you feel like you've thrown your money and your time away. I don't want you to feel that. It's another problem we have in the movement. Some of you may not know this. If you start trying to get people to give you money, you find very often they say, I've been giving money to you guys forever, and I never get anything in return. It's donor burnout. Now, I'm trying to be the opposite. When I ask you for money, I want to produce something. Remember, I'm not a typical politician, if that makes any sense. I'm a business guy. So I've got, to get, I've got to give you value for your dollar. So I'm trying to give you value for your dollar. I want you to believe in your heart that if you give money to Larry Sharp running for something, there's going to be a return. There's going to be something that's going to make sense. And you're going to feel like, yes, I'm glad I did it. It's why I'm doing this radio show, right? I'm doing this now because I want you to feel like, yes, you're going to have access to me. I'm going to tell you things. I'm going to, we're going to change things. We'll get more people to come to the movement, right? I want people to think that also. That's why I'm asking you to give me money now for this. I always want to produce value. My worry is if I run in 2020, not only will I destroy my finances and my family, but I also won't make enough impact to be worth the money and the time and energy that I'll ask from you and everyone else that I would ask it from. Does that make sense at least? Yeah. Uh, so who do you support then in the primary? You mean Democrat, Republican, Libertarian? 
Well, of course, libertarian. We don't have a primary. We only have a um, we only have a uh, convention. And sadly, uh, in a way, I feel bad about this. We don't select our nominee until May of next year. Now, that means that person will only have about six months to actually run, which is going to be tough. Um, we need people to be running a so whole lot like? earlier. Um, but I don't know. So who do you like? Uh, m- the sad part is people are going to be jumping back in. You're going to find a lot of people jumping in in January, February, March. They're going to be jumping into the fray. So I don't want to pick a horse yet because I don't know who's going to actually be in the lineup. The lineup will be solid by March or April of next year. By then, I will pick a horse. I will pick a horse by March or April of next year because that's when we'll know everyone who's going to be in. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you, my friend. All right. Um, yes, people ask me to run all the time, and I appreciate it. People ask me to run it for, you know, run against AOC. AOC is my congressperson. Yes, it's true. She's literally my congressperson. But I'm not going to run against her either because I'll lose. I'll ask for a bunch of money from everybody. I'll lose. I'll make no impact. It's not what I want to do. I don't mind losing if I make impact. I lost last year, and I made impact. So I don't have a problem losing. I have a problem not making impact. Your money, your time, your energy – is valuable to me, and I'm only going to ask for it if I'm going to give you something in return. I want you to be like, yes, I'm glad I gave that guy my money. I'm glad I made a sign for him. I'm glad I showed up at his events. I'm glad I listened to his stuff because he gave me value. That's what I want. So I'm hoping I'm giving you value here. So go to patreon.com slash sharpway and throw a couple bucks my way so I can keep doing this. This costs money, costs time. Do what you can. Nine bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever you got, throw some money there so I can keep going on. It matters. And of course, please support me and, and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, YouTube, and even LinkedIn. Yes, even LinkedIn, all of those things, please. All right. I'm going to grab, if I could, another New Yorker. I appreciate that. I'm going to grab Jason. Jason, you want to talk about the China trade war. How are you, Jason? Are you there? Hello? Jason, you there? Hello. Yes. I'm not Jason. I'm Tyler. Oh, Tyler. That's fine. I'll take Tyler. What's going on, Tyler? How are you? Not too bad. How are you today, Larry? I'm doing great. You want to talk about e-cigarettes? I do, yes. Talk to me, brother. Okay. So over the past couple of weeks, we have noticed that uh, there have been a lot of people who have been getting sick mm-hmm. over these e-cigarettes, these illegal THC the uh, black market cartridges that yep. people have been purchasing off the street. Uh, and then you notice that the federal government and the FDA and the CDC and everybody else are talking about going and banning all of these devices. Uh, well, I know because you know you something about that. Well, prohibition always works. So I think that's obviously a good idea. I'm kidding. Yes. Prohibition never works. The, the reason why these people are getting ill i'm sure of it is because of what you just said there has been there the the government is trying its best to crush the e-cigarette world to crush the vaping world to crush the best of its ability and it's silly it's like we never learn it didn't work for alcohol a hundred years ago it just made things worse it doesn't work with Mm -hmm. cigarettes it's not going to work with e-cigarettes here's the issue just let people be adults and let them try. This goes back to unintended consequences. Let me, let me give you another one here. All right. When I was a kid, the drinking age was 18. That's what it was when I was a kid. 
as I was getting older, it became 21. The goal of end, of changing the drinking age was to keep beer out of high school. That was the goal, right? If we raise the drinking age to 21, there'll be less beer in high school. And to be forward, that actually worked. There was absolutely less beer in high school. There was still beer in high school, but there was less beer. But what was there an increase of? Weed. Weed became easier to buy than beer. So you actually have an increase in kids in high school smoking weed, um, doing other hard drugs instead of drinking beer. It changed. Not just that. When I was a kid, there was no big issue. I mean, it was an issue, but it's no big issue with binge drinking in college. Why? Because you, you did your binge drinking when you were a teenager in your mom's basement. So when you got, when you got your blackout drunk and threw up, it was okay because your cousin or your mom, your dad was there. Now they go off to college and binge drink and they get, they binge drink with a bunch of other college kids who are also binge drinking. Bad, bad, bad. Nothing but bad. Unintended consequences of trying to ban a substance versus just letting adults make decisions. They will make bad decisions that will happen because adults do that. And when they make bad decisions, they'll learn or they won't, in which case it's still their right to make that error. But hopefully others will see it and things will get better. I, I think the idea of trying to ban e-cigarettes or those jewel pods or vaping, any of those things is nothing but a bad idea. Simply make it to where if you're 18 or older, you can make a decision. You just do that. And here's what I know will happen. If vaping is bad, I don't believe it is, but I could be wrong. I'm not an expert here. Maybe it is bad. If it's bad, we will then begin to figure it out and people will either stop doing it or there'll be warnings on it or it'll, it'll lessen as what's happened with cigarettes, right? Less people smoke. As more people see how bad it is, less people smoke. But some people want to smoke knowing that it causes cancer. I literally saw a guy who had a pack of cigarettes and on the pack of cigarettes – was a picture of a hole in someone's throat saying this is how bad cigarettes are. And he was smoking. That guy made a decision. That's what he wants to do. And guess what? It's his right. And I know someone might say, but Larry, it's poison. You don't want people putting poison in their body. First off, lots of things are poison. Isn't letting someone eat too much? Isn't that going to kill them? Isn't letting someone decide that they want to work 50, 60, 70 hours a week in an accounting firm sitting in front of their desk and they dropped out of a heart attack at 50. Isn't that bad? All of these things are bad and people make decisions. And if you want to make a decision to work in an accounting firm 70, 80, 90 hours a week and die of a heart attack at 50, it's your life, not mine. If you want to smoke an e-cigarette, you're not smoking. If you want to, what is it, vape it? I don't know what it is. You don't, I know they're not smoking. If you want to use an e-cigarette, it's not my business. It's yours. It's your life. This is not going to work. It's just bad. And I'll go one step further. If you make it illegal, they will still do it. It will be in the black market and more people will be hurt. Prohibition always does two things. It allows people who are thugs to be monsters. And two, more innocent people are hurt. And I'm going to say something which is controversial, but I don't care. I'll say it anyway. I remember years ago, this is 2016, so three years ago, 2016, Gary Johnson is uh, doing a town hall on, I think it was CNN, and a woman asks a question. She says, my son died of an overdose, and how can you want to legalize drugs because my son died of an overdose? And Gary Johnson was very nice and polite and sorry and such. 
people say the same thing to me. I'm not so nice and sorry and polite. I'm not. Now, my mother, those of you who know, my mother was an addict. So I had an addict in my life. Drugs don't kill those hundred or so people who die every day of drug overdose. Drugs aren't killing them. They aren't. Because if you ask a person who's lost somebody, and maybe someone listening or watching has lost someone to this epidemic, I would ask this question. When the person passed from the overdose, did it happen because either they were in rehab and came back out and didn't know what the dosage was or because they didn't know who they were buying from or they didn't know they had a bad batch? Nine out of ten times, that's true. Maybe more. Maybe not nine out of a hundred times, it's true. That's usually the reason why someone overdoses and dies, almost always. If the substance was legal, we would know what's in each dose. We'd know where to go. The person wouldn't overdose. Drugs didn't kill your loved one. The war on drugs killed your loved one. The war on drugs did. I want to be clear about that. Government is what killed your loved one, not the drug. And that may sound harsh, I know, but it's still true. But Larry, if drugs were legal, my, uh, my, my cousin or, or brother or sister or mom might still be on drugs. Yes, but they'd be alive. And you'd have a chance to get them off drugs. You'd have a chance to, for them to survive and to keep them in your life. There'd be a chance. When they're dead, ball game's over. No chance. It's over. The war on drugs is what's killing people. You want to blame somebody? Don't blame the pusher. Blame the last eight presidents who've done nothing to stop the war on drugs. Blame them. So I'm sorry. I know I went way over. Did I just, did I just talk over? <laughs> I just talked over. But yes, you got me going. Um, banning substances is never the answer. It doesn't work. It makes things worse. And we never seem to learn ever. Banning is not the answer. Instead, educate Allow people to be safe, and you will find these things will become bad. They will be. I mean, they, people realize how bad they are. They will become better, or they'll begin to go away. One of two things will happen. But here's the next thing: you can't stop people who want to engage in self-destructive behavior. You simply can't. You can try all day long. You can't. Instead, try and love them. Try to make them happy. All right. I, I saw a, a – I'm going off again. I know. I'm sorry, guys. I saw a, a TV show on Netflix, and there was a guy in this who was in prison in the Philippines. And he said, you know, I did drugs. I'm in prison in the Philippines for years. I'm in prison. He goes, but I'm okay with it. He goes, you know, I had no family. I, I had no, no wife. My kids had left me, and I enjoyed drugs, and I just wanted to do it, and I'd, I'd do it again. How do you stop that guy? That guy lives in the Philippines. He knows how bad it is. He knows he's got a, a, he's got a guy, Duarte, who literally says, I will just kill all drug dealers and push it. I'll kill them all. There's little machine guns in the streets. And he still does it. He can't stop this stuff. It doesn't work. All right. Anyway, I've yapped away. Thank you for that phone call. I appreciate it. Um, again, if you like what you're hearing, support us. Patreon.com slash Sharpway. Give what you can. If you'll be part of the program, 573 573- Four two seven five four six three. Let me grab another call. We're we're gonna move to uh, Florida this time. See, we're all we're we're all over the country. We're going to Florida. We're gonna grab Eric talking about drugs. How are you, Eric? Eric, you there? Yes. 
Talk to me. Oh, hi, Larry. Um, pleasure to speak with you. I would like to know, based on uh, the previous phone call and what you said, I want to preface this by saying I agree 100% in spirit that prohibition does not work. Mm-hmm. However, I have trouble reconciling that with um, drugs that can induce an almost immediate state of violence in a user, something like Flocka, where people are eating other people's faces, or at least that's what I read in the news. Should those even be legal? Yeah, that's a funny thing. Um, Most of those drugs that are so horrible, fentanyl, Flocka, all those, those came again because of the war on drugs. The worst drugs, again, at you're going to hear the same the same concept. The worst drugs are all because of the war on drugs. And let me give you an example of this. Wall Streeters. I know many of them. There's a lot of Wall Streeters who have been on cocaine for years. Why? Cocaine is a relatively safe drug. Not a safe drug, but a relatively safe drug. How do you know that? Rich people take it. That's how you know, right? It's expensive. Rich people take it. Many people now, though, believe it or not, are actually crushing up Adderall and snorting Adderall instead. Because it's even safer. So you find a lot of people at the Wall Street they're actually snorting Adderall or they're snorting cocaine. It's a common thing. Well, poor people can't afford cocaine because the war on drugs makes it very expensive. So what happens? Hence, heroin. Oh, we can't afford heroin? Got it. Meth. I can make it in my bathtub. The, the, the drugs get worse and more deadly. Fentanyl. Because I can't afford heroin. I can't afford cocaine. Fentanyl. If you give people a drug that they would actually use. For example, alcohol. What, what are the odds of someone getting a bad batch of alcohol that will kill them, right? Moonshine. You purposely would go for moonshine. Very few people would, you know, drink moonshine or drink alcohol and go blind. It's very rare. What, when, when did that happen often? During prohibition. Because during prohibition, it was so expensive, people would cut alcohol with horrible things. And people would literally go blind and have all kind of horrible issues and bad moonshine. All these bad drugs only become a thing because the good drugs are too expensive. So am I saying they should be legal or illegal? I'm saying it won't matter. They won't even exist. Why would someone purposely take fentanyl when they could take cocaine or something like that if if that's your thing? And to be clear, I am probably one of the squarest guys you'll ever meet. The only drug I ever consume is caffeine. That's it. I don't even drink alcohol, nothing. So it's not about me getting high or even caring. And I've had an addict in my life. I know what that's like. When you go for the drug or you, they pick the drug. It's what they do. I get it. All I'm saying is if you give, if you make them legal and make them safer, the harsh drugs don't even bother existing. If you want to make them illegal, I don't care. Make them illegal. No one's going to care. Right? No one's going to care. I mean, to be forward, rat poison's legal. Arsenic's legal. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, that stuff's legal, right? And you can take rat poison and, and ingest it if you want to. In fact, if I'm a five-year-old child, a seven-year-old kid, maybe eight, depends on what state you're in, and I say, hey, eight-year-old son, daughter, here's 10 bucks, go to the store and buy rat poison. The local store will give the son or daughter rat poison. I would argue rat poison to a child ingesting is a whole lot more dangerous than most drugs. Am I making Excellent sense? point. Am I making sense? 
Uh, yes, I would like to ask on top of that in summation of what you're saying, like, I think we could all agree that there's no like easy resolution to the predicament we found ourselves in. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with the whole drug war being awful at this stage in the game. Would you, are you implying that, um, making all drugs legal now with time, it would eventually make the bad ones disappear. I like don't think really that's realistic. Ones. To be forward with you, in my perfect magical world, sure, but that's just not going to happen. It's it's not realistic. My point when I ran for governor and my point now is the number one thing is just treating cannabis like a plant. Just do that. I know many people who are strict libertarians get mad at me and go, Larry, you're weakening and you're watering down. I know they say that, but I'm telling you, most of this country doesn't even want to do that. They want to. They, they don't even want to just regulate cannabis like a plant. They want to legalize it, but either only medical or with taxation or all kind of caveats. I'm saying make it a plant. Start with that because once you start with that, a lot of people will move towards cannabis products, and the other and the other drugs will begin to become less and less powerful, which means less and less scary. When that begins to happen, you can begin to let other drugs become legal as they become less scary. And as less people are on them, more people are taking cannabis products. It goes back to the rat poison idea, right? People aren't using rat poison. There are other ways of getting high than rat poison, right? You're finding that happening more and more and more. So I think Portugal is an example of this. There's been a lot of studies on this. You know, you will find the first step is just treating cannabis like a plant with one exception. When I was in, um, when I was running for office, I was said regulate um, uh, marijuana like onions, right? Let people grow their their medicine in their backyard. Uh, let farmers have a cash crop. Enjoy. Let people enjoy if they want to, right? That's the first step. I'm not, I'm not in any way, shape, or form advocating now for full legalization, full legalization of all drugs. Plus, the drug companies would stop that in a heartbeat. It simply would not happen. <laughs> it's not realistic. They have too much money behind it. If you go for the whole thing, you are going to lose it. You could get nothing. Take one step at a time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. And sadly, you're right. This is not a one, you know, one thing solves everything. It's not it's not that way. And sadly, a lot more people are going to still be hurt and still going to die. That's still gonna happen. Um, I wish less would, but I can't see another option. That's why we love you, Larry. Strong stances with a practical approach. Thank, Thank you, you my very friend. much for your time. I appreciate time. it. Have a good night. Awesome. Yes, I know I speak often about the war on drugs, on how bad it is. Another set of unintended consequences. Again, the goal was to you know, stop the crime. And what did you do? You increased the crime, right? You increased the crime. More and more and more people are, are going to jail for this, it's a, it's a bad idea. We're gonna we're gonna stay on the drugs today. I guess that's our, our night. It's a drug night tonight. I will grab uh, one more person. I'm gonna grab Will. Will, how are you, my friend? Oh, oh, bless you for taking my call, and thank you for everything that you do. Thank you, my friend. Of course. Now, um, you know, of course, you speak the truth, and I really feel like you got robbed. Let's be honest. I mean, you know, you really should be there. You know, in, oh, in, in position of power. I agree, hundred um, percent. You know, let's be honest. You know, you know the war, the war on drugs. I mean, since the forties. You know, thank you for your service, by the way. But 
let's be honest, you know, they, they knew all too well about opium for how many years yeah. now? You know, we're living in 2019, yep. and yet they've been playing around with this substance for how long? Yes. How I know this? Because I had to live through it, right? What they do you mean? Tell the, me. They take the man. Well, they take the man, and they sweep the rug out from under him, right? So I'm trying to be a sole proprietor, but I think now I actually found my message because listening to people like you and other people that are just done with being lied to, the misinformation and the disinformation. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the knowledge and the information is out there, but you got to find it. You know, I was, you know, I, I'm a 34-year-old man. I got... Well, you're going work. a little place. Let me, let me focus you, brother. Let me focus you. Let, let, you said you're a Thank sole you. proprietor. Explain that to me. Well, basically, I was trying to start my own business, but, you know, you got to take money to make money, right? Yes, absolutely. So I started working a, you know, you know I started working a part-time job, mm -hmm. which they, you know, because of uh, Obamacare... You know, they keep you, you know, under so many hours, but they overwork right. you as much as they can. Of I course. got injured. I work. Long story short, they want to say I'm 50 percent disabled, but I'm mm. 34 years old, so I can't get disability. Right. right. At the same time, you know, when you're trying to buy a house and start a business and they just, you know, like they don't really care for you. No, but you're yet, right. They I take agree. the sovereignty from you. Yes. And they tell you that you need a lawyer. Why? When the information is out there. So I was, you know, looked at as a drug seeker, even though I was just an injured man. No, I got you. Know? you. Yep. And, then, and then they put me onto boxing. So when you actually inform yourself and you look at the checklist and you go, wait a minute, wow. Yes. Something that only stays in your system for four to six hours is actually, you know, oh, my God, he takes, he takes Percocet. But then again, you put me on Suboxone, that makes long-term you know, disability. Yes. You know, it, it's a good thing I have my faith, my knowledge of what I am, right? Because I, I'm, I mean, we're human beings. So tell me matter. how you got out of that. Tell me what happened. How'd you, yeah, look, they put you in a situation to where it looked like, look, we're going to put this guy in a box. He's going to be stuck in a box for the rest of his life, and you're not in the box. So tell me how you got out. You want to be on? I went to a neurologist. I couldn't walk, right? Mm -hmm. I, everything was bothering me. I couldn't walk. I... So, uh, you know, the pharmacist said, go to a neurologist. Okay. Why would I need a neurologist when my, you know, consciousness is in control of these 50 trillion cells that make this human being? Yeah. Just like the 50 trillion cells that make you who you are and yeah. your voice and the vibrational force that you bring through to everybody. And that's all I want to do is just so let you're, people you're know that, that you, you are able... in complete control. Well, so you said you're telling me you went to a neurologist and when you went there... No, 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 I didn't even have to go to a neurologist. Oh, I that was, was the trigger that got you to realize what was going on. Exactly. Got it. Okay. No, good. I'm glad. So, you know, like, so that you know, trigger, you didn't family, go when you figured love, it out. The, the, the love of knowing who I am. I mean, honestly, let's be honest. How many people, you know, go through program to program to yes. program to program, emergency yes. room to emergency room. They get put on another drug. Yep. My father was actually on 300 milligrams of methadone when only... 150 is a daily dose. Yep. So you mean to tell me that, you know, these programs work when I actually had the love of my family, the love of my faith, and the love of the person I should be, well, you, know, you know, to it's get funny through you say in that. a week? Let me, let me tell you something, Will. I don't know if you know my story, but my mom was also an addict, and I, and I didn't get that. And people say, well, Larry, how, how did she get out of it, right? Well, my mom went to jail, and that was her, that was her bottom, right? And that's how she realized she had to get back up. But lots of people go to jail, like you say, go to a program and go right back to the habit. My mom had one advantage. And to your point, that was me. 
I gave her the love and support that she needed to help her get back on her feet. I'm the one who helped get her her car because you're right. You can't get credit. All those things. I, I got her apartment. I co-signed for an apartment because exactly right. You can't get it. The system is set against you. I agree with you 100%. Right. I am so glad that you got yourself out of the situation. And sadly, Will, you know, you're the oddball. Most people don't. Oh, of course. People think I'm crazy because I actually, you know, like I said, the information is out there. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a difference between education, quote unquote, because that's another problem. Let's be honest. Oh, I, yes, I that love is. that you speak out on that. Yes, absolutely. Because why do you want to program my child in the most valuable moments of their life from ages zero to seven? So I can When they should them. actually be told to exactly. Yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I'm tired of yes. it. I'm tired of it. I, I, I mean, honestly, you know, I, I appreciate not what many you're saying. of us. Well, I do. I but, appreciate. But as many, yeah, as many people that can spread. Hey, may, may, maybe your message is a little different than mine. But at the end of the day, it's all about saying that we're not going to let them take this from us. If we're Americans, right? We shoot guns. We jump out of planes. I mean, we know the risk. Don't don't lie to us. Absolutely. That's another thing. And we make why, our own why choices. Would a pharmacy. Right. But, but choices, this is the thing, though, is the disinformation, though, because if you go to a pharmacy and you get a Schedule 2 drug, now, mind you, like I said, if you look at the chart between Suboxone and, and Percocet, I mean, there's 40 different drugs oh, in yeah. between that. Yeah. But why are they actually both a Schedule 2? Well, to when be they forward, both have I different, think most you know of what them, I mean? It's the misinformation or disinformation. I, I think most you know, of the like doctors I, who are doing this, to be forward with you, I think most of them aren't even that educated. I think most of them are doing no. what they think is just, oh, this makes the most sense. This is there. Anyway, Will, I got to grab someone else on the phone. I appreciate oh, you calling. Course, but thank you for what you do, you know. Thank and you, let's brother. let's be honest. I mean, doctors say do no harm, but let's be honest, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's not always most, true. Right? Thank you. All right, have a good thank night. Thank you. All right, well, you know, Will was talking about shooting guns. Will was talking about uh, jumping out of planes. That's correct. And I think I have someone on the line who wants to talk about guns right now. I got Jordan. Jordan, how are you, my friend? Good, Larry. How are you? What's going on? You're doing well. I'm doing well. Yes, thank Thanks. you. Thank you for taking the call. Yep. Um, I just wanted to ask you um, how you felt on the new gun control laws that are going around with the red flag law. Look, um, and, I will. Um, I will very often talk about this um, when people ask. I haven't brought up gun control much recently because man, it's just a bad environment right now. There are so many people who just think the only answer. It's just gun control, gun control, gun control. And I feel sometimes, and I know this may sound harsh, but I feel sometimes like I'm beating my head against the wall, which is why I haven't said much about it recently. But my views have not changed at all. They don't change at all. Red flag laws are a bad idea. I mean, they're just a bad idea. And I'll, let me explain why. At its core, at its core, all these shootings, these mass shootings, they're all public suicides. At their core, that's what they are. And again, as I talked about earlier, you can't mandate people to stop doing self-destructive behavior. You simply can't, right? There was a movie years ago, maybe 20 years ago, Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich, I think it was called In a Line of Fire, if not mistaken. And the guy's talking about how he wants to uh, attack our ex uh, chief executive. I'm not gonna say it, I don't wanna get in trouble. He wants to attack our chief executive. And he says in the movie, he goes, if I want to attack our chief executive, he says, you can't stop me if I'm prepared to give my life to do so. And that was a valid point. If someone wants to kill themselves, how do we stop them? 
right? You, you just can't. The goal is getting people to not want to kill themselves. That's the key. And if you go back about a year ago, this is all about school shootings. Remember, school shooting, school shooting. They don't call it school shooting anymore. What do they call it? Mass shooting. Why? Because yes. they're, they're not at schools anymore. Why? Because the schools are becoming harder targets. That was my point the entire thing. Now schools are getting ready for them. These people pick schools because schools were soft targets. They're no gun, gun-free gun zones. Of course they pick them. But now when those become harder targets, what do they pick? They pick the streets. They pick theaters. They pick soft churches. They pick soft targets. They're trying to find places where they can go out in a, in a blaze of glory. It isn't about security. You can't make enough security to make it happen. It's impossible. If you do red flag laws, this goes back to the idea of banning. All you would do is make sure a bunch of innocent people get hurt. I can guarantee that. Here's how I know. There's no such thing as a red flag law for terrorists, right? For bad guys. No such thing as a red you don't, you don't have to report a terrorist. It's not a law. You're not required. Yet how do we stop all our terrorist attacks? People talk. They say it. They call the FBI. And they go, hey, FBI, this happened. How do I know? Here in New York City, the, the, um, the um, Times Square bomber. It was some guy who called up and said, hey, there's a guy. I think he's got a bomb in his car. Boom. Cops come. Stop him. That's how it works. There was no law requiring him to do so. There were three, if I'm not mistaken, three different attacks stopped. If I'm not mistaken, it was about two months ago in three different states. I think it was Ohio, Florida, and Connecticut. And I think only one of those, uh, uh, of those uh, states had a red flag law, which means people voluntarily said, hey, I think some guy's doing something bad. You don't have to have a law. You can just use the bully pulpit. You can just tell people, if you see something, say something. That's what we have in New York City. In New York City, where I live, every single subway station, you see a little thing. If you see something, say something. There's no law requiring us to report something. But we do all the time just by being reminded, hey, do the right thing. We do it. But what if there was a law? And I'll do it here in New York City. What if there was a law that said, if you see something, you must report it. You know how many people will be getting arrested by cops every single day in New York City? Literally thousands will be getting arrested. Thousands. Because now if I don't report it, I'm a criminal. Now I'm a criminal. Of course I report everybody. That guy's got a mustache. Clearly he's evil. Let's get him arrested. I'm pointing at my producer right now. He's got a mustache. Yes, clearly he's uh -oh. <laughs> clearly he's a bad guy. So he's got to go to jail. And we'd all be – well, this guy probably does go to jail. But anyway, no, I'm kidding. Um, all I'm saying is we would keep doing it. The red flag laws create a secret state police of us reporting on each other, and it's already happening in New York State specifically. In New York State, literally, we have laws that say if you're a, in, in the medical community, you have to report someone who has any problem or concern medically, right? Any type of med, med, um, uh, mental um, issue at all, anything. This literally has happened. A guy gets into a car accident. He's bring, brought into the emergency room. They say – how are you feeling? What's going on? And he says, I'm in so much pain, I want to die. Well, you're in a car accident. I get that. The nurse puts suicidal. That guy loses his firearms. And once you go on that list, there's no way you get off that list ever. There's no due process for that list. There's no due process for anything. You go on the list, you lose your rights. Now, you might say, well, Larry, they're losing firearms. So what? I get it. There are a lot of Americans 
who think the Second Amendment is not valid. I get it. I understand that. I disagree completely, but I understand how they feel. I get that. I have empathy for them. But what about when it's not just your Second Amendment? What about when it's your fourth or your sixth? What about when you have to get searched? What about when you don't get due process? How about that? If you don't care about the Second Amendment, don't you have other ones that you care about? Aren't some of those rights important to you? That's my issue. When you start with red flag laws, you start removing rights in the name of safety. And that never works ever. And we don't learn this, but it never works ever. It's going back to George Orwell in 1984. You know, um, Big Brother's always watching now. Yes. And we're slowly losing our rights. If you say something with your First Amendment right, you're losing your Second Amendment right now because of these red flag laws. Yes. And I'm not against too clear. It's not like I want to protect bad guys. But the issue is, and, and I'll use New York State as a good example. New York State in 2013, we passed the SAFE Act. And for those of you who may be listening don't know that, that was our big um, uh, law that we had in, in, in New York State in 2013 that made uh, uh, requirements for reporting ammunition, for only having, I think it's seven-round magazines, the max you'd have for a firearm, all types of plastic pieces that were randomly decided were now all of a sudden illegal because it was you know, an assault weapon all of a sudden because it had these characteristics that they just made up. And I'm not joking, they just made these up. This is now considered an assault weapon. All those things popped up, and literally overnight, millions of New Yorkers who purchased their firearm legally became violent felons. And when I say violent felon, I mean that. In, in That law meant if you have a gun, you are by default a felon, and because it's a gun, it is violent. Even though you've done nothing, possession of the firearm makes you a violent felon. That's New York in 2013. When that happened, I'd ask the question. What was the trigger? What was happening in New York State when New York State was so dangerous that was required? Nothing. It was after Sandy Hook that happened in, in Connecticut. Nothing happened in New York that was that there was no problem that was solved. There was no problem to solve. Nothing happened. Now fast forward six years to twenty nineteen, and now we have red flag laws. But if you ask anybody two years ago, do we need any, why do we need a safe act? Because the safe act's working. It's making New York safe. See, nothing bad has happened. See how awesome it is. Well, then why do we require red flag laws? What was the problem? What was the issue? What happened? What, what, what problem are we solving? Nothing. Nothing's happened in New York that was worth the, even the safe act. And now we have not only safe act, but now red flag laws. These are just people who are virtue signaling, just saying, see, we hate guns. In New York State, if someone breaks into your house and you shoot them in the leg, you're in trouble. If someone comes to your house and you beat them to death with your, with your daughter or your son's softball aluminum bat, you're fine. The actual damage you do is irrelevant. The fact you use the gun versus using a baseball bat is what matters. That's how backward our state is. This is how backward America is when it comes to firearms. You may say, but Larry, you don't understand this. We have to make sure that people don't have these assault weapons. The most damage done is not by assault weapons. It's often by pistols. And not just that in New York City, it's vans. I'm not joking. It's vans. They take a van and they run people over. And the most damage ever done in a school attack at all was in Nice, France with a van and about 80 people were killed. 
80 people killed. Worse than any shooting we've ever had. So all of these red flag laws are just security theater. They are just ways of taking away more of our rights. They don't solve any problem. There's no problem to solve in New York State. And they don't stop anything. There's still more shootings. So you can, if you want to, ban whatever you want. It's not going to stop it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, I took away your, your fire. Go ahead, please. No, no, it's okay. Um, you know, criminals don't follow laws. That's all it comes down to. And the word assault is a verb. So anything can become an assault weapon. I can take a fork and it can be an assault bat if I hit someone over the head with it, you know? Or well, well I think you see that, right? In London right now, they're trying to ban knives or register knives. Why? Because they have no guns. Yet there's more murders in London than New York City. Right? And there's supposedly no, no guns in London and in England. Suppose there's none. What, how are they killing people? With knives. There was literally a picture of a knife murder, and they showed the, it was the, 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 the outline of the guy right above uh, an anti-knife poster. That's how bad it was. If people want to commit suicide, they're going to commit suicide. What we have to do is stop having people want to commit suicide. That's what these shootings are. They're, they're public suicides. We're not to be being killed. And here's the worst part. We add all the mass shootings up. All right. I mean, this is going to go back to what we talked about earlier. The mass shootings. You know, there's 300 mass shootings, 1,000 mass, whatever the numbers are every year. Here's the issue. Half of those mass shootings are war on drugs. A mass shooting is four people killed with a firearm in one event. Half of those are gangbangers. And the war on drugs, you've just cut your mass shootings in half. Right off the bat. No, of course not. Because the the stats they use, they use those stats whenever there's a school shooting and say, see, it's a mass shooting. Yeah, but half of those mass shootings are are actually uh, uh, gangbangers shooting each other on the streets of Chicago or the streets of insert town here, city here. Half of them are those. And why are those who are shooting each other? Government. Yeah, the war on drugs. I'm going to go a bit off here, but I, but I think you'll understand where I'm going with this. In Chicago, oh, Chicago okay. has been a very violent city recently, right? And people talk about all the shootings, all the problems they've had in Chicago. Yeah. Why has it become so violent? And they will say because of guns. No, it's because law enforcement, FBI and local law enforcement have become too damn good at fighting the war on drugs. I'm not joking. They've infiltrated the gangs so well that in the past – there would be maybe one, two, maybe three gangs in all of Chicago. And they had their borders between each one. And maybe there were border skirmishes with their war on drugs here or there, which was bad. Don't get me wrong. I don't want anyone to die. But d- numbers-wise, it was lower because there were only two or three borders. But once you break down and infiltrate all these gangs and break them up, now now it's block by block. Now there's not three main gangs. There's 400. So you have 400 borders. No one trusts anybody unless they're born and raised with them. So now everyone's shooting. They can't use courts. They can't use cops. There's nothing except street justice. So the reason why there's so much death and destruction in Chicago is because they've been prosecuting war on drugs so hard there. I know it sounds crazy, but yet again, what's the common thread here? Government intervention yet again begins to create more violence. Trying to stop people creates more violence. Instead... Talk to people, show people, have communication with people, change people's minds. And guess what? People will change. I know it sounds crazy, but it's what actually works. 
The problem is government is violence and violence is a very good short-term answer, right? It's a short-term answer. Hit someone over the head now and you get what you want. Do what I say or I'll kill you and you get what you want. But it's not a long-term answer. In fact, long-term is nothing but pain. One of the best examples I can give you, I'm, I'm going all, all over here, man. I, I hope you're going to stay with me. You with me still? I'm, I'm with you. All right. I'm going to go to China here. The one-child family. The one-child family. China did this. I think it was what the 60s or 70s. I forgot when they did this. It was the 80s. I forgot when they uh, implemented one, the one-child family. But they implemented it. And the goal was to stop uh, the massive increase in Chinese population. Did it work? Yes. Well done. Success. You have a one-child family, right? There we go. We have a short term. We have shortened and made things, of course, you know, a whole lot better for the, the population growth. Well done. But massive long-term problems. Number one, you literally had to have a problem in China where they had to have signs in the rivers that would say, don't drown your daughters in these rivers because they were literally drowning their daughters. They would have an accident while they were, you know, uh, washing their clothes or something or getting water and they dropped their baby. I know it sounds horrible, but that was actually happening. If you think I'm making this up, do your own homework where they dropped their, their daughter, daughter in the, in the river and go, oh, my daughter drowned and died. So I need to have another baby so they can have a boy because they won't have a boy. The Chinese government never, cal- never ca- calculated their culture. Their culture said they have to have boys. That's what their culture said. They were literally drowning their daughters in the rivers. Babies, drowning them in the rivers to ensure that they can get a boy. That's one consequence that's pretty goddamn horrible if you ask me. But that isn't even the worst. You keep going now, what do you have? You have some villages where it's three to one, male to female, because of all the girls who were either aborted or killed. How do you survive in an environment where you're three to one, male to female? You got some problems there. So while short term, yep, you absolutely cut your uh, you absolutely cut your population down. Long term, another unintended consequence of government violence is that you have a problem in your own country. You have a problem in your own nation that is now going to be with you for decades, if not centuries. Who knows how long the damage that was done by this will last in the psyche of the, of the Chinese culture? Who knows? So anyway, I'm sorry. Did I did I did I go too far, my friend? No, you answered it uh, perfectly. Um, you know, I was going to say um, we need to vote out these Congress and senators that know nothing about you know our Constitution, well, and you I know would, there needs look, to be term limits. I have I have obviously I'm biased since I am libertarian. I'm a third party. I'm biased, but I believe in my heart. I believe this to be true. It's one of the reasons why I do this. The answer is third party. The two-party system simply allows us to say the other guy's bad. I'm not as bad as him. I will protect you from her. I'm not as bad as her. That's it. And that's all we do. That's all we have to do. But once you have third party, now if the other guy's bad, maybe you're bad too. There's another person to vote for. That's why third party matters. And the Libertarian Party is the best party. Why? I'm in it. Obviously, I'm biased. But yes, the Libertarian Party is the best one for many reasons. The first one is if you're about freedom and you're about less government, less taxes, less control, less violence, by default, you have the moral high ground. And I always say I have the moral high ground. That's number one. But number two, when it comes to Democrats, they are supposed to be about civil liberties. They're not. 
but they're supposed to be. When you have a libertarian, a strong libertarian party, Democrats will have to be more about civil liberties or people will vote libertarian. So you will have better Democrats. Republicans are supposed to be about less government, lower taxes, pro small business. They're not. When you have a strong libertarian party, they will have to be or people will vote libertarian. So the answer isn't just voting out your guy or the other guy because then the next loser pops in. The answer is having a strong third party to keep everybody accountable. A third party by default becomes the referee. And that's what I want. There's no referee. There's a war going back and forth and there's no referee whatsoever. It's just no holds barred. Say whatever you want. The, the caller before, Will was talking about misinformation. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's harder and harder and harder. So anyway, I want to say thank you so much for calling, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. Great. Guys, if you want to join the program, uh, 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 as always, 573-427-5463. And, of course, please support us. Head on over, if you would, to patreon.com slash sharpway. Give what you can give to make sure this keeps going. If you like what we're doing here, if you think it's valuable, please jump on board. And, of course, like us and follow us on Sharpway Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and, yes, even Instagram. We are everywhere. So we're trying to stream everywhere. Join us so that people know what we're talking about. I know I've talked a lot about unintended consequences the entire night. That's what I'm talking about. And the issue is we often think that if we feel good, then it'll work because it feels right. And the next one I bring up is probably the most controversial of all of these, and that is abortion. Just today on my Facebook page, Someone was talking about this. Perfect time I was going to bring it up. It's about the idea of, you know, Larry, if you're anti-abortion, you've got to be pro-choice. You've got to be about making it illegal. And I will say every single time, no, it doesn't work. Making abortion illegal does not lessen abortions at all. It doesn't do it. What does it do? It punishes poor women. That's what it does. Because poor women will be, be caught in back alley procedures while wealthy women will fly to wherever it's legal and go get their abortion. That's what happens all the time. Ireland just recently reversed its ban on abortions. It had, it had since the beginning of time. It's been against the law, to, as long as I know, in Ireland to get an abortion. What was happening? The wealthy women were going to London and getting abortions, and the poor women were getting stuck. Or going on vacation and getting abortions anyway. There's no way, again, to just stop this behavior by going, it's illegal. If you want less abortions, you have to have women not want to have abortions. How do you do that? By one, providing them with other options, right? And again, I look in New York State. I am someone who is not about making abortion illegal at all. It should be legal and safe. And that makes people angry, I know. But I'm still anti-abortion. I want less abortions. So what do we do? Number one, make adoption easier. This is personal for me. I'm adopted. Many, many of you know this. I'm adopted. My birth mom could have aborted me. She didn't. She put me up for adoption. I got adopted by, by a mother and father. I'm very happy I have a mother and father. I'm very lucky. I'm blessed. I'm very happy I had them. So adoption, I'm a big fan, clearly. It is very hard. How many people do you know who are getting children from China or Romania or Russia or Mexico or insert country here? We should be ashamed of ourselves that people are deciding to get babies someplace else because they can't get them here. 
or if they think it's too hard to get them here. It's embarrassing that that's true, but it is true. It shouldn't be. It should be easy to get to adopt. Of course it should, but not just that. Why isn't surrogacy easy? Right? In New York State, it's illegal. I'm not sure if it's illegal to other states, but I know New York State, it's illegal. You can't. And here's what I'm also sure of, 100% sure. There are literally thousands of couples who would happily, eagerly, openly pay for you to have your, your baby and for them to take your baby. Happily. Pay your medical bills. Pay your, your rent. Happily do it. Happily. If we simply could do it. It's against the law in New York State. You can't do that. Why? Now, does that, does that mean women wouldn't have abortions? It doesn't mean that. But it means if women knew they had other viable options, many of them would select to not have an abortion. And if I have less abortions, I'm happy. Not just that. I talk about it. I say I'm anti-abortion. I would like you to not have an abortion. I'd like you to have birth control, which means why the hell isn't birth control over the counter? Give women more options, more choices, so they either don't get pregnant in the first place or when they get pregnant, they have other options available to them that are realistic for them. Right? You can't just go, you know, well, you, you should just keep the baby. While I wish that were true, and I mean that sincerely, if you're in a certain situation in your life as a woman, hubby or boyfriend's not around, I'm asking the world of you. I'm asking a lot. And there's an environment that says, what are you, stupid? You don't have a support structure that's going to support you emotionally, financially at all. Everyone around you is going, what are you, stupid? Why are you keeping that baby? When you have that environment around you, how can I expect you to keep the baby? It's not realistic. I'm asking too much. Instead, let's change the culture. I was asked about two years ago at an event. I was asked, Larry, what's the best defense against someone attacking you or hurting you? What's the best defense? And my answer was people not wanting to hurt me or attack me. That's the best defense. And the guy who asked me that question said, wait a minute, Larry, that's it, most people tell me things like my gun or my fist. I said, no, no, gun or a fist is a response to the attack. If you attack me, I can respond with gun or a fist or insert thing here. But if I don't want you to attack me, my best defense is you not wanting to, you deciding not to, an environment to where it makes no sense. The same thing is true for abortion. If we create an environment to where people don't want to have abortions, they choose not to. No need for the law. I want abortions to become obsolete, not illegal. If we took all the time and money and energy that we spent on lobbying for or against abortion, all the money and time and energy we spent on trying to stop or keep Roe v. Wade and instead put that in something like, and I'm not making this up, artificial wombs, I'm serious, we might have one by now. If we had artificial wombs, abortion becomes irrelevant. Boop, in a virtual womb, life is good, move on. Done. Change our laws that, that that baby cannot be adopted. Abortion become obsolete. Literally, that could happen if we focused on that versus focused on being righteous. Now he's saying, Larry, wait a minute, are you the only guy to think of this? Of course not. There's a very important reason why the abortion issue isn't dealt with, and that's because it's a wedge issue. Wedge issues are amazingly good for the two-party system. The amount of people who've said this to me, Larry, you're pro-life, so I, you, you know, so you're not pro-life, so I can't support you. Larry, you're, you're, you won't say you're pro-life, so I can't support you. Wow, is that backward? But it happens all the time, and it's common. It's a wedge issue. 
So I have to be someone who says I'm pro-life, but then lie about it, and then that's okay. That's half of the Republicans out there. Half of them will say they're pro-life, but they aren't. Half of them actually get – you've seen it. There have been stories when they get abortions from their, uh, their, their uh, mistress gets an abortion anyway, and they say they're pro-life. Happens all the time. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Don't get me wrong. I'm human. We're all hypocrites sometimes. Emotions make us hypocrites. I get it. But I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I want to say here's a real option, not using force, getting people to choose to deal with this issue. All right. You might say, but Larry – We've been, us pro-lifers, we've been fighting and it's been working. Look at the laws that came out of the South. See, we're making it harder and harder and harder. There's going to be an unintended consequence for this. And those of you who are pro-life, you're seeing it already. Have you seen the laws we have in New York? Where basically now you can have, the woman can have an abortion now the day before the baby's born. Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Was it because there were so many abortions, not enough abortions? No, nothing was happening in New York State to make that law a thing. That was in response to the laws in the South. That was an unintended consequence. We're going to fight and we're going to force it. We're going to fight and we're going we're gonna to try to overturn Roe v. Wade. I know many of you pro-lifers think it's the right answer. I'm telling you the truth. It's not the way of doing it. It's the wrong way of doing it. The unintended consequences are going to come back, and what's going to happen is New York state laws are going to start popping up in every single state. You're going to see that happen. The reverse will happen. The average person, the average person in the world doesn't think about pro-life or poor choice at all. It's whatever. They don't really care. It's not their world. The average person. There are people who are very passionate on both sides, obviously. But the average person doesn't care. When pro-lifers are aggressively trying to overturn Roe v. Wade, what winds up happening is the people who don't care believe, believe that this is actually anti-woman. And all of a sudden they return and, and become almost pro-abortion. Not even pro-choice, pro-abortion. That's what's been happening. You're seeing it happen. The answer is not through law or violence, even in this. The unintended consequences are going to be what you don't want. This is not the right way of having less abortions. It isn't. The right way is conversation, talking, providing more options to women choose to not do this. And it will take decades, and that's okay. We've been fighting this war for decades, haven't we, and losing. So let's just talk. Let's make this happen. But that was the right. I'm going to go to the left, too. The left has the same issue. And the left's issue is we're going to make sure that people treat everybody fairly, equally, no matter what. We're going to punish them when they don't do it. We're going to punish them when they say the wrong words or have the wrong conversations or do things incorrectly, and we're going to punish them forever. And the biggest thing you hear right now, people are talking about this, the, the Dave Chappelle uh, uh, special on Netflix, I'm talking about that thing, right? How we talked about this idea. And he's right. I've been saying this for years. Maybe he's copying me. I've been saying this for years. You can't force equality. There is a backlash that will come back and you're seeing it already. And it, some of you don't believe this, but if you're paying attention, you know, it's true. In the attempt, to, the Me Too movement went too far. I know some of you are going to be upset at me, but I'm being forward with you on this. If you go so far with this and the left has gone very far with this, the backlash is you're finding more and more men take the Mike Pence idea of women now. I'm joking, obviously, but you know what I'm saying? Where 
They don't want to deal with women at all. You're finding small businesses are not hiring women, particularly women of color, because they're afraid that that's a lawsuit waiting to happen and they'll be not hiring them. Now, that may be conscious. That may be unconscious. I don't know. Well, I do know. A lot of it's conscious. Some of it's unconscious, but a lot of it's saying, I'm not hiring her. No way. And you're saying, but Larry, it's against the law. Yes, and they don't care. They're not going to hire somebody they think is going to end their business. They're just not going to do it. It's not happening. Worse, and here's the worst part. At the highest levels, big business is done through networking, through knowing people, through having those late night conversations, those early morning breakfasts and stuff. You know who's not being included anymore? Women. They're not doing that anymore. They're not taking off the drinks like they used to. Now, let me be wrong. I want to be clear about this. There was a problem. They were taking these women out and they were doing inappropriate things. You are correct. I'm not saying people were not. I'm not saying that. There are bad guys who did bad things, of course. What I'm saying, if you push it too hard, the backlash becomes difficult. Now, there are sometimes a good backlash for this. Now, the advantage that has happened when you find women of color who are not being hired in small businesses, which is true, that's been happening. There has been a positive, I guess, counter backlash. Is that a right? Am I making that sense? And you're finding a lot of women now, women of color particularly, who are starting businesses. There has been a huge increase in women of color starting businesses. So there has been, I guess, a backlash of a backlash, which may have actually been a, a good thing in the long run. But, and there's a but to this, I didn't want those women starting that business because they felt like they had no options. It's the wrong reason to start that business. I'm glad they've done it. It's given them, I'm sure, more power, more authority, more control of their life. That's awesome. But it was the wrong reason to do so. It's because they felt that they couldn't go anyplace else because you found mainstream simply not wanting to hire them. There was literally a um, um, – my wife watches the TV show on HBO, uh, The Affair. And there was a part on, on that when there was a woman of color who was struggling to move ahead in, in her world, struggling to move ahead. And the, the sad part is that's sadly true. For many women of color, they struggle. And the Me Too movement and those movements like that were supposed to be there to assist them and help. And for many of them, it actually the backlash was actually negative and bad. You're going to wind up making it to where people just don't care. And the Dave Chappelle issue is a perfect example of that. Dave Chappelle simply said, I don't care. Be mad at me if you want to. I'm going to say bad, horrible things. And if you're mad at me, oh, well, I don't care. And you're going to wind up having a lot of people who just go, I don't care. At one point, we go, I don't care. At one point, the backlash is, shut up. I'm tired of hearing you talk. And here's the worst part. When you have, and this goes directly to the Me Too movement, when you have someone who says, and this is not common, I know, but it's heard too often, things like, well, if some man or does something to a woman and she feels a certain way, there's no difference between that and sexual assault or, sex or, or rape or any of those things, right? No woman should feel uncomfortable or feel sexually harassed ever. Of course not. But if you move into zero tolerance, and this is my last piece that I'll bring up tonight. The ideas of zero tolerance. If you bring up zero tolerance, you hurt a lot of people. And there are two reasons why. Number one, when you make everything zero tolerance, that means if I look at a woman the wrong way, it's the same as if I assaulted her. What did I just do? I just made the women who are really sexually assaulted 
nothing. I've lessened the women who are really being hurt. And there are women who are really being hurt, really being assaulted, really being harassed, being raped. Those women get lessened, which is unfair for some woman who felt uncomfortable, which is bad, but it's different. It cannot be black and white. There are shades of gray here, and we should accept those as shades of gray. If we don't, we lessen the people who are really hurt. And that's an important piece. I want the people who are really severely hurt to be dealt with, to be heard, versus people who are uncomfortable. Dealt with, but lightly. You might say, but Larry, no one should be. I agree. But your life shouldn't be ruined because you are uncomfortable. Could you like be ruined because you're raped or sexually assaulted? Yes, I get that. It could be. You may, it may take you decades, if at all, to heal from something like that. I get it. But if it takes you decades to heal from being insulted, shame on you. Shame on you if it's insulted. If it's mentally, physically abused, different issue completely. And they should be separate. But it's a second piece. And I go to a, a, a lighter level. But the concept remains the same no matter what. And that is the idea of zero tolerance, making a rule for the anomaly. The second something happens, we have to pass a rule of law because that's what matters. There was a congressman who told me once, I mean, who I heard, he didn't tell me, I'm sorry. I heard uh, once say, it doesn't matter if the law makes sense or is symbolic after a tragedy because we have to do something. All right, you probably have this happen in your world. You work in a company. There's a conference room. In the conference room, people come in and they have their lunch and they talk and they work and we have a great time and we get business done and we collaborate. Life is good in our conference room. For three years, we've been in this conference room doing great stuff. Life is good. All of a sudden, one day, Jim spills his coffee. When Jim spills the coffee, what do we do? That's it. No food in the conference room. That's it. Nobody can have anything in the conference room ever. No more food in the conference room. That's it. Gonna do something. Gonna stop this stuff forever. It's like, can you do that? What happens? Well, the people who use the conference room to have their lunch and such don't anymore. Because they can't. It's against the rules. What do they do? They stop collaborating. They stop working together. And they said they have lunch at their desk instead or they leave. Lose, lose, lose. But here's the worst part of that. The top guy, the, the top sales rep in the company, he walks in and has lunch right there in the room. What are you going to do, fire him? You're not. He's the top sales rep. You're not going to fire him. The partner, she walks in. She's the partner. She's going to come in. She's going to have her coffee, whatever she wants in the room. You're going to fire her? She's the partner. You can't. So the elites of the company, they do what they want, and the juniors all get punished. Not just that, you're less effective. Not just that. You have a worse culture. And people see the elites getting away with it and go, how come I can't get away with that? Because the second one of the junior guys walks in and does it, one of two things happens. One, you don't enforce it, in which case your word means nothing. So why bother having the rule? Or two, you hammer them. And they go, you're hammering me, but you won't hammer her. Well, she's a partner. I'm not going to hammer her. So you're saying there's separate rules for the elites and the non-elites. That happens in everything. That happens in government too. That happens in companies. That happens in your family. That happens everywhere. Every single time we create zero tolerance, it makes things worse. Every time. And I said, well, Larry, you can't say that. Are you saying you want to tolerate harassment, 
You want to tolerate bad behavior? No. I'm saying I don't want zero tolerance. Zero tolerance is about one thing, punishing the person who did the deed. I don't want to focus on punishing the person who did the deed. I don't want the deed to be done. I don't want to focus on punishing men who harass women. I want women to not be harassed. It's a different policy. It's a different issue. So I want to make sure we're focusing on the right issue, which is I don't want women to be harassed. How do we do that? By having the conversation. Do you keep hearing me say the same thing? By not having zero tolerance. But the second that someone feels they're being harassed, you have that conversation. And now if Jim's harassing Jane, it's a conversation. And we see if it's real. And we try to get Jim to stop. And maybe he will. Or maybe he won't. And then he gets fired. But at least there was due process. We had a conversation. Everyone around Jim doesn't go, I can't do anything. Oh, my God. I want to I leave. They instead go, no, they were fair to Jim. And Jim was a jerk. And Jim got fired. But when you do zero tolerance, here's the problem. Again, the elites. Jim is a top sales rep. Jane is being harassed by Jim. Jane knows with zero tolerance, if she tells on Jim, Jim has to be fired. If Jim gets fired, the company struggles. She loses her job. If, so does she really want to tell on Jim? She doesn't. That's why she has to wait 20 years before she tells on Jim because of zero tolerance policies. She can tell on him. What if she does? And Jim gets fired. What if it's a small, uh, if it's a, it's a small industry you're in? Now she's blacklisted. She can't get hired anyplace else because she's the one who tells on, on the, on the, on the, on the high top sales rep. And if Jim stays in the field, he goes to the next company that she's going to be at. She can't go there now. And she knows that. So she doesn't tell on Jim. Here's worse. The boss sees the harassment happening. The boss can't lose Jim. Jim's her best sales rep. She can't do that. What does she start doing? All of a sudden, Jane has bad behavior. And we start building a book against her to get rid of her as a troublemaker. Because you can't lose Jim, the top sales rep. You may say, Larry, that sounds horrible. Yes, and happens every single day in America. Happens all the time in America. But when you don't have zero tolerance, when you have the conversation, when you say instead, what's going on? How did this work? You have a real sit down. The people who are around Jim go, okay, he was treated fairly, but he's a jerk and he's gone. She's not blacklisted anymore. She now feels comfortable having these conversations. Other people see it. And not just that, some people don't know what harassment is. I'm not joking. If that, was, if that wasn't true, there wouldn't be class upon class upon class. When you have conversations, now people see what it is and go, oh, God, I'm doing bad stuff. I should stop. And the jerks who don't stop become obvious jerks and you get rid of them. Zero tolerance is bad. The unintended consequences only hurt. They make us feel righteous. But that's all they do. They just make us feel righteous. They don't actually solve anything. I want to solve problems. I want to have conversations. I want our culture to change and get better. That's why I spend so much time yapping at you all day and all night. That's why I do it. All right. I'm sorry. I've kept the phones waiting forever. I apologize. Let me uh, get into the call here. I'm going to grab Greg. Greg, my friend from New York. Please go ahead. Hi, Mr. Shark. Uh, my name is Greg Torres. I am down here in District 79 in the Bronx. I was wondering if you think the uh, Libertarian Party is ever going to take over the Democrat Party out here. I ran out here for Assemblyman uh, and got crushed. And it just seems like the voters out here just see a Democrat and 
they automatically vote for it. How can we go about turning that tide? Yes, this is a really big problem. And I got to tell you, of all 62 counties, the county I did the worst in, Bronx. And I'm from the Bronx. It's horrible. I did the worst in my own home, in my home county. Yes, it's true. The Bronx is a very tough place to win in. The Bronx is a massive Democrat stronghold. Absolutely hardcore Democrat. And I think to win in the Bronx is literally going to take years. And the way we do it, and this is both, I'll go the Bronx, the state and the country, all three of them. When it comes to the Bronx, particularly, we are going to have to learn to talk better to the left. And many mm-hmm. libertarians do not talk well to the left. And we've got to talk better to the left. We've let them know there are many things we care about that matter. Right? I've spent literally over an hour, two hours maybe, in Queens College once speaking about poverty, right? talking about poverty. And that matters to many people in the Bronx. Talking about race relations, how to make them better. That matters to many people in the Bronx, right? We aren't very yeah. good at that as in general, which is why you see me very often talk to the left to the best of my ability. We have to begin to talk to the left. In For New York State in particular, if the Libertarian Party can't talk to the left and turn the left towards the Libertarian, we can't win the statewide election. It's impossible. There are simply too can, many I Democrats in New York agree. State. Second? But how, how, how would you uh... – how would you go about – like you could see how Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo and their, their policies of tax and spend yep. and all of that. How, how can we go about making them see that? It's like they just see a, a, a D next to someone's name and it's automatic vote for them. How can we go about showing them, hey, yep. you know, look at what's going on in New York State. You're getting taxed through the roof, and you're, you're blaming it on the president and everyone else. H- how do we go about – changing that mindset, Mr. Sharp. Thank Uh, you for your time. No, no, no worries. I'm I'm glad you're asking this question. They're important questions. As I said, we've got to talk better to the left is number one when it comes to the Bronx and New York State. We have to get better at talking to the left. How do we do that? By getting in front of them. I'm trying my best. If you noticed when I'm out here, last week I was talking to Howie Hawkins. He's he's an open socialist, right? He's as left as they come in that regard, right? And I had a conversation (laughs) with him and we found common ground. Right now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of people in the Green Party, Democrat Party, who would never vote for me. But there are some who heard it and said, you know what? This Larry Sharp guy is a human being. And while they may not have voted for me this time, they might next time, particularly over some guy they don't like. This takes time. It's a cultural issue. We have to start talking to the left more and more and more and show them that we care about them. We have to focus on outcomes. That's the critical aspect, focusing on outcomes. You heard me earlier, if you were paying attention earlier in the show, I talked about the idea of talking literally to Nazis, right? Talking to them. They're, Nazis yeah. are in our, uh, in our midst, right? We, they, they, they're around us. We talk to them. We have to turn them. Well, socialists do. It doesn't matter whether you're left or right or middle or whatever. I've got to talk to everybody. So we have to talk to them. We have to get in front of them and talk. We can't surrender with only one try. Now, you got crushed in the Bronx. So did I. But I'm still here. Yeah. I'm not done. And I hope you're not done either, Greg. I hope you'll still have the time to have those conversations, to meet your friends. I don't want us to debate. I don't want us to argue because arguing and debating, there's a winner and a loser. If you see what I try to do all the time, I try to just have conversations. I try to touch issues that that are tough and hard. People get mad at me, but I try not to get mad at them. 
I try to see their point of view. It's, it's a difficult situation. It is. I'm, I did not saying it's easy. Greg, if it was easy, we would have done it. Remember, the Libertarian Party has been winning arguments and losing elections for 45 years. I, I want to turn that we around. That I want to turn it around. I want to make it to where we're winning elections, and I don't care. Let's lose some arguments. I don't mind. There were people who got mad at me for last week when I talked to Howie. They were saying, well, he said this or he said that. I'm like, I don't care. I'm not here to fight him. I'm here to have a conversation. That's what I'm here for, right. to have a conversation. And we will disagree, yep. and that's okay. But I can't turn you if I can't have a conversation. Next thing to remember, me having one conversation with somebody, and you're, that person's stuck in the Democrat-Republican world, I'm not going to turn them with one conversation. It's going to take two, three, four, five conversations. Not just me. It's going to take me doing it. Then, Greg, you're going to do it too because he knows you, and you're going to have the same conversation. He's going to have the same idea. You're going to talk to him also. So that person goes, man, yeah, yeah. Here's something for those who don't know much about the liberty movement. The liberty movement right now currently tends to get people from the right faster, but they also go back faster. We get people from the left slower. When we get people from the the left, they stay. They don't go back. Once people from the left Mm. come to us, they don't go back. They stay. In fact, many people who are some of our best, best activists, many of them, believe it or not, came from the left. Many of them did. Oh, wow. Yes. So I came from I came from the more right, but uh, yeah, like I've been a centrist. I have more left social issue views mm-hmm. and uh, more right economic views. Very common for which us. Pretty much, which fits in more or less with exactly where we are. But uh, you know, like you said, everything's debatable, and uh, I like, and I'm open to other people's ideas. There were some things I didn't like from from uh, the left or the right, and I'd hear their opinion, and I was like, wow, you know what? Maybe that's not so bad. Yes. But there are some people, like you said, that they're so locked into that. They are? That uh, that whatever it is, and that's it. And but, no, but hold on something. No Greg, let me, let me bring something to you to your attention. The, what I, you'll hear me say often, the most zealous are the converted. The guy who's in the corner preaching about Jesus to everybody who walks by, that guy two years ago was nowhere near Jesus two years ago, right? He's converted. So he is out there. He's a zealot. He is all about Jesus. But the guy or gal who's had Jesus in their life their entire life, they're not zealots. They just That's who they are. That's just who they are. They just go about their business. The zealot is the person who's converted. So you know what? When you see somebody who is so strong Republican or so strong Democrat, you should look at it as an opportunity to get a convert, to get a zealot. That person who was the, the, the Democrat or Republican and they become libertarian, they're your next county chair. They're running for Congress. They are the next person who's a zealot. They're ready to rock and roll. So I see that person and I say, you know what? I can still turn them. And it's the best part. If you turn someone like that, you will often see others follow them. So you don't just get him or her. You also get a bunch of people who respect that person and go, wow, she turned libertarian? Maybe I should be. I should open up my mind to this. So all I'm saying, Greg, is please don't stop. You lost, so did I. We're still here. Let's keep having conversations, and we can turn this county and then turn this city and then turn this state and eventually turn this country. Hopefully so, sir. Good luck. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. You have my vote. Thank you. All right, guys. I want to say thank you so much for this evening. Please make sure you help me out. Support me. Patreon.com slash sharpway.com. 
Give what you can. If you like what we talked about, I'll have a guest next week. It'll be a New York City politician next week. We'll have a guest next week. It won't just be me and you. It won't. But again, we will do more me and you's because I want you to call in and talk to me. This is important. You have access to me, so we keep doing this. But again, also support all the other things. Like me on Facebook. Like me on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Guys, thank you so much for this evening. I will see you next week here on The Sharp Way.